It is the deep desire of this church to reach people with the name of Jesus in the city of Chicago. It's the deep desire of this church that we would be a faithful missional church that sees the city of Chicago as our mission field. One of the things I love about our church is that we are constantly sending missionaries out to places all around the globe to unreached people groups. Frankly, we have a commissioning from the Lord and a lot of our missionaries are sent to some of the darkest, most dangerous places on the globe. We send missionaries all over the globe, but many are even in undisclosed locations. Why? To bring the light of Jesus into places where the gospel has has not gone yet. And yet, even though we send missionaries overseas, every follower of Christ is called to be missional, to live missionally, like a missionary wherever they've been called to live and serve. And for all of you who live here in Chicago, that's this city. It's the city of Chicago. One of the things that's so difficult as being a pastor here at Park South Loop, and this is a conversation I have with many of you all the time, is that people are constantly moving away from this community. And uh, this is a bit of a confession for you to start this. Uh, I see a few folks who are moving here. This is not supposed to be a guilt trip for you if you're moving away. I love you. Uh, actually, what I want to just say is part of the challenge of being this community here at Park Community Church in the South Loop is that the South Loop and the near South neighborhood is, is kind of a, a constant flux of people coming in, getting equipped here in this community. And then I've learned over the years to really embrace and celebrate the sending of people off to other places around the globe and around the country. And I love thinking that the thumbprint of this church and the things that got developed in their heart as they were here in this community are now sent off to other places where it's being multiplied. But at the same time, I want to challenge us who are here in the city to consider what it means to live missionally here in Chicago with the type of intentionality that we see of, of all through the book of Acts that they were living. We need some folks to dig in. And even if this is a season for you where you're only here for one to three years, or, or maybe God's called you much longer, maybe you're going to be here for 10, 40, 50, maybe this is the place where you're going to live your life. How do we live as missionaries, missionally, in the city of Chicago effectively? In the middle of our passage today, Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 11, Paul gets a vision from the Lord. All right, let me read this vision to you. Verse 9, the Lord says to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I love that little vision from the Lord. He's encouraging Paul. He's saying, I know it's hard. We're going to get to the whole story so you can see it. I know it's hard and I know you're being attacked. But I've got people in this city that I've called you to reach. So keep on with the business I've given you to do. And part of that vision is, is certainly unique to Paul. But part of that vision we have to hear for us as well today. God's called us to reach those in this city who are far from God with the gospel of Jesus. Why? Because he has some in this city who still are yet to put their faith in Christ, who he knows about, who he's called you specifically to bring the light of the gospel to. So my question for us today is this. If we've got this calling, if that's what we know we're supposed to be about, how do we know if we're being effective or better yet, what makes an effective minister of the gospel? Now, when I say minister, we sometimes confuse that word. We think of people like me who are kind of full-time pastors. Actually, the Bible uses the term minister to speak of saints, every follower of Christ. You are a minister of the gospel, ministering to people. So what makes us an effective minister? While the nuances of each and every person's calling in life is different, 
We all have different jobs. We all have different scenarios and circumstances and parts of our life that make our lives unique. All of us have the same call on our life to be a follower of Christ who's effective in the work that God's called them to do. We're effective at winning people to Christ. We're effective, effective at building his church. We're effective at living faithful, honorable lives in the eyes of a watching world. And we're effective at declaring war on Satan's schemes. We're effective in those things. And we need to know what makes for an effective minister. So today we're in chapter 18. I confess I have a very long chunk. I'm not, I did not write the original preaching schedule as we were going through the book of Acts, but I've been given the task of preaching all of chapter 18 today, which is too much text. It's actually three sermons. So here's what I want to do. I want to back up a little bit as we look at chapter 18. Some of the themes we're going to see in, eight, in chapter 18, we've already covered these themes in depth four or five times as we've gone through the book of Acts. So I want to back up a little bit today, and I want to look at the life of Paul as a whole by looking at chapter 18. And I'm going to answer the question, what makes an effective minister of the gospel? By looking at Paul's life in chapter 18. And I'm going to call out six specific qualities that ought to be true of every follower of Christ if they genuinely want to be effective in doing the work Christ has called them to. Now here's the deal. Paul had a unique calling on his life. He was an apostle. None of us have the exact same calling as Paul. He was traveling from city to city, planting churches, going back to old cities he has been to. That was a unique calling for Paul. And yet, the qualities that made him effective will make you effective as well. And so as I go through these, I want you to be asking, are these true of me? Number one, number one, a sincere occupation with the word of God. A sincere occupation with the word of God. First insight we see is that Paul was constantly not only in the word, but he was using the word in all of his conversations with everyone he was having in the area at the time. Verses one to eight. After this, Paul left Athens. If you recall last week, he was in the city of Athens. And then he went to Corinth. Now, if you know your Bibles well, you know that we have two New Testament books called First and Second Corinthians. Those were written to the church here that he helped plant in Corinth. He went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Pause there. That's actually validated by outside biblical texts that in this exact time period, Claudius evicted all the Jews from the city of Rome. The Bible, people thought that was a misnomer or a mistake in the Bible for many years. History has proven otherwise, that every word of the Bible is true. He went on to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. There's that phrase. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments, said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He left there, went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. All right, first thing, Paul was occupied with the word of God. Now, what does that word occupy mean when you see it right there in the text? He was occupied. It means he was incredibly devoted to it means he was continually giving himself to. 
It means that his life was habitually engaged in the word of God, not only privately, but publicly as well. Where he went, he was a person who was regularly engaged with this book, reasoning with Jews and with Greeks from the text. It was part of his everyday experience. Paul was in the word. I love how it says, when Silas and Timothy arrived, so those are his co-workers, they had not been in Corinth yet. When they arrived from Macedonia, what's the first thing they see? They're they're looking for Paul. They've been disconnected from Paul for a few weeks. They're looking to see him, make sure he's okay. What do they find him doing? Exactly what they knew Paul would would be doing. He was occupied with the word of God. What else would Paul be doing? That's what Paul was about. He was in the word. It consumed him. It was the, the root of his ministry. Wherever he went, he wasn't just trying to come up with good ideas. He wasn't just trying to make friends. He wasn't just trying to do his job. He was trying to actually be in the word and allow everyone else to come into contact with his life as his life was being increasingly woven into the fabric of the pages of scripture. This is a pattern we've seen all through the book of Acts, isn't it? In fact, two weeks ago, I preached a sermon on the Bereans, And what we saw with the Bereans is that they were deeply curious about the word of God. They were studying it daily to know if the things that Paul was saying were true or not. The greatest mistake any Christian or any church can make is to begin to drift from the standard of God's word. When you begin to drift, that begins a slippery slope that leads you to a place where you are no longer a church. And I'm gonna say some harsh things today I think it's from the text. If you noticed, Paul said some harsh things to some people in this text too, and he wasn't afraid to say it. When you begin to take your eye off the word of God, either as an individual Christian or as a church, you slowly drift down a slippery slope until the point that you are no longer what the Bible considers a church. This happens very subtly. It's very easy to adopt the wisdom of the world, but that is not what Christians are called to do even when the wisdom of the world sounds very good or is blanketed in biblical terms. We are called to fixate ourselves on the wisdom of the word, the word, not the world, the word. In my office is a quote that has defined my pastorate. Uh, This was a gift to me. It's always been a quote that has been a blessing in my life and then my brother-in-law actually handmade this beautiful picture for me that hangs in my wall. The quote is from Eugene Peterson before he wrote a book called Working the Angles. It's all about pastoral ministry, and it's a commentary about what the pastorate is about. Now, while there's truths in this quote about the pastorate specifically, it also should not only be true of the pastor. This is what it means to be a Christian in some ways. Listen to this quote. It's a bit longer. Bear with me as I read this to you. This is a a quote from a church who's now ordaining their pastor to ministry. These are the words they're saying to him. One more thing, we are gonna ordain you to this ministry and we want your vow that you will stick to it. This is not a temporary job assignment, but a way of life that we need lived out in our community. We know you are launched on the same difficult belief venture in the same dangerous world as we are. We know your emotions are as fickle as ours and your mind is as tricky as ours. That is why we are going to ordain you and why we're going to exact a vow from you There may be times when we come to you as a committee or a delegation and demand that you tell us something else than what we are telling you now. Promise right now that you won't give in to what we demand of you. You are not the minister of our changing desires or our time-conditioned understanding of our needs or our secularized hope for something better. With these vows of ordination, we are lashing you fast to the mast of the word and sacrament. 
so you will be unable to respond to the siren voices. Two things. One, I pray that's what you see in me. As your pastor, I need you to know that's my job. And I have to confess to you, over the last year and a half, I've made some folks angry as I've done my best to stick to that. But I promise you, I will stick to these vows. But number two, this is not only my job. This is what it means to be a Christian. We lash ourselves to the mast of the word of God. We filter it all through the word of God. We bring every thought and every idea and we filter it through God's word and we say, is it true? I need to know. I'm trying to make sense of it all. And it's tricky. It's difficult. But we have this community. This is what the church, the family of God is for. We cling to the word of God. I invite you into that. Number two, Paul had a determination to work hard. A determination to work hard. Look at verse three with me again. And because Paul was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He's staying with Priscilla and Aquila. Paul was a tent maker. What does that mean? He made tents, okay? That's what his job was. He knew how to work with the leather, knew how to work with the sticks. He'd make tents and then he'd sell them, and that's how he made money when he went from place to place. Paul was a hardworking guy. Think of Paul's life. Paul was essentially doing what I'm doing, although he had a day job where he was making tents as well. And then he was traveling and he was reasoning in the synagogues and he was going and making disciples over here. And, and even while he was doing the tent making, he was seeing his tent making and the business he was doing as opportunity to build relationships and share the gospel with other people. Now, just so you know, we do have precedent in the Bible to set aside pastors and, and pay for their job for what they do. So that, that is something we actually have in scripture as well. However, if you look at Paul, he was a hard worker. You know, one of the things that will ruin your testimony and your witness to a watching world about Jesus is if you're lazy. If you are someone at the office who is just known for browsing social media and watching YouTube all day and really not getting your job done on time, your witness to the world will go out the window. You just, you won't have a shot. Why? Well, it's very biblical. It's very biblical. Let me read to you some Proverbs. Proverbs 13, four. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The pl uh, Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Proverbs 12.11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Here's the point. The, the point is, if you want to be an effective minister of the gospel, pull from Paul's life. This guy worked really hard. And actually, later on in 2 Corinthians, he'll go back to this and he'll, he'll, he'll remind them. He'll say, remember, I worked hard among you. I didn't, I didn't want to burden you with having to, having to take care of me while I was among you. I worked diligently. Now, this might seem like it's just kind of an overly practical point. Actually, it's highly spiritual. If you're a Christian, your commissioning from the Lord is what Colossians 3.23 says, to do whatever you do, to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Two qualities so far. Bound to the word of God. Number two, hardworking. Are these true of you? Are there areas of your life where you need to grow? Number three, the ability to see when God opens doors and closes doors. The ability to see when God opens doors and closes doors. Pick up with me in verse six again. 
And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, I love this, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, this is incredible. Paul, he has such fortitude. He continues with the work. And and notice, the door was closed. He didn't close the door hastily, okay? Paul's in the synagogue, reasoning week in, week out. We've seen this. This is his pattern. He goes to a new city. He goes into the synagogue. He opens the scriptures. And usually when he goes in, one of three things happens. We saw this last week. Either people make fun of him, people believe, or people reject him. Well, in this particular circumstance in Corinth, a lot of folks were rejecting him. And the the pathway that he thought was from the Lord, he had been faithfully pursuing, that door was closing. There was no more room to have effective work in that synagogue where he was going. And he has this really harsh language, he says to me. He says, your blood be on your heads. I think he's actually quoting there from Ezekiel chapter 3 or from Ezekiel 33, where it talks about the watchman who's got to give a warning to people of impending doom. Otherwise, the blood of the people that die is on the watchman of the city's head. He's basically saying, look, I've done my job as a watchman. Now the blood's on your hands. I can do nothing more with you. Now watch, the door closes for effective ministry. But Paul doesn't stop. He goes just down the street. He's got eyes open. He's holding his life with open hands like this. And he's saying, okay, God, where do I go now? And the Lord leads him to the house of a guy named Titius Justice. And the whole household believes and is baptized. And a revival begins to build in Corinth. Being led by the Holy Spirit is a a lifelong pursuit. But one of the things that you'll know you're growing in your understanding of the Spirit is when you have the ability to hear the word of the Lord. Sheep know their shepherd's voice. It's interesting, you know, that's a, that's a line I say a lot. You know what that means? If you go to the Middle East uh, and you go into a big pasture, you'll see 10 to 15 different shepherds with all their different hundreds of sheep all mixed together, okay? They're all being a shepherd together. They're all in this field together eating their grass. But then what will happen is each shepherd has a very particular call, some kind of whistle or thing he does. I'm not even going to try to do it right now. It's some kind of call he does with his mouth that his particular sheep, while they're all mixed together, know that sound and they get up and they walk to their shepherd. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. It's a unique call of the shepherd. As a follower of Christ, we know our shepherd's voice. And And the more you pray and the more intimacy you develop with the Lord, and that happens through all the different disciplines of Christian living, but you will gain a sensitivity to the voice of the Lord so that when you begin to sense from God, this door is closing and that's for me, says the Lord. And this door is opening and that's for me, says the Lord. That is a skill that takes time to refine it takes time to listen well. There are moments in your life where God closes a door. One of the mistakes we oftentimes make is that God is closing a door, but we're afraid to let that door go. And the reason we're afraid is because we're not listening to the Holy Spirit through prayer, listening to God say, no, I'm calling you elsewhere right now. I want you to think in your life. There may be circumstances where you have been pushing against a closed door longer than the Lord has invited you to do so. And what God is asking you to do is to once again hold your hands open like this and say, God, I don't want to push against closed doors. Where are you leading me to? 
And I found that when you begin to pray those prayers and ask with sensitivity and listen and take the time to be patient before the Lord, very often he will lead you to a house like Taisha's Justice where there's great work for you to do, okay? Don't be afraid to close a door, but with every closed door, you look for the open door from the Lord. Proverbs 16, nine, classic verse here. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord, it's the Lord that establishes our steps. Sometimes God's got different plans than our own plans for us. Number four, Paul had a fortitude to withstand opposition. A fortitude to withstand opposition. Jump down to verse 12. We'll go through 18. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reasoned to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sothenes and the ruler of the synagogue and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Now, what just happened in that scene? The Jews are trying to incite a mob to beat Paul. They want to beat him physically. But God has already told them in a vision. We're going to get to that in just a moment. God already told Paul in a vision he wasn't going to be harmed. And so that was impossible. So they were hindered from actually hurting Paul for the work that he, God had given Paul. But notice, they had tried. They had actually tried to hinder Paul's work. But what does he do? Verse 18, it says this. Verse 17, let me read the next part of verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of his brothers. A whole mob is brought up in this city. They're trying to literally beat Paul to death. Ends up, the Lord protects him. Rather than running away, Paul digs his heels in into the city of Corinth. Isn't that incredible? I mean, I, I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. I, I know my heart. And if, if there was a mob that literally was trying to beat me for the work I was doing, I would have a bit of a proneness to think, okay, maybe I should be quiet for a little bit, right? I'm a human being. Paul was a human being. But Paul dug his heels in and he continued with the work that God had called him to do. Part of my job is to equip the church for suffering. John Piper used to say that very regularly. Part of my job is to equip the church for suffering. Paul suffered very well because he was a Christian. In our day and age, the church has lived for many, many generations at this point, frankly, for many decades, as kind of quiet and behind the scenes. It's been one of the great flaws of Christianity over the last number of decades. I think there's a lot of reasons why it happened. I've explained that in sermons before, but I think what happened is that the rise of postmodernism as a philosophy of living life basically said, all roads, whatever your truth is, is your truth, that's fine. Christians, you can have your truth so long as you do your truth privately in the walls of your church on Sunday, but don't bring your truth out to the public square. That's kind of what postmodernism pushed on the church over the last 50 years or so. And the church kind of bought the lie. The church said, okay, you're not going to hurt us if we're coming into the walls of a church and worshiping privately. That's great. We'll do it, and we'll stay largely quiet. But for a few voices, many in the church stayed quiet and bought the lie that your faith is supposed to be a private thing you do on the weekends with your church family, but there's nothing public about your faith in Jesus Christ. And I just want to tell you, I mean, just from the one chapter we're studying today, is that true, church? 
No, that's not true. You won't ever find that idea in, the wall, in, the, in these pages. Our faith is a public faith. It's a public proclamation of the reality that Jesus is king. And I want to tell you that we're entering into a new phase in culture right now that's well beyond postmodernism. The, the culture out there is not content with us having our faith in here and doing it privately anymore. They're not content with that. They want to change what we believe in here. And one of the reasons we're in the predicament we are as a church in the 21st century is because we've, we bought the lies so many ge- generations ago that we were okay just being quiet about things. And church, I just want to tell you a couple of things. My job as a pastor to equip you to suffer well comes on the backs of saying our, our faith is called to be public. Jesus is not only our king, he is the king of kings. He is the king of every king. Jesus is not just ruling and reigning over this area right here, but he's ruling and reigning over this entire city, whether or not anyone chooses to believe that or not. And the public proclamation of Jesus Christ as king, whether that comes from something like street evangelism to something like having a meaningful conversation around your dinner table with people in your community about your faith in Jesus, just something every Christian should be doing regularly, increasingly what you will find is there will be levels of persecution that vary from conversation, conversation to person to person, levels of smearing, levels of demeaning the Christian in this society that will continue to come. I don't want you to be fooled that regular Christian living will not bring about persecution in your life. I wanna say that one more time. Regular, faithful Christian living will bring about hardship and persecution in your life. My job is to equip you, but look what Paul did. What Paul did is Paul saw the persecution, he had fortitude to withstand it, and then he stuck with the work. Why? Because he had a faithful king who was taking care of him. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse two. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Paul have fortitude? It's because he looked to Jesus Christ who went before him and he knew that it was Jesus who first withstood all the suffering that we could ever go through. See, whenever the Christian experiences persecution on one level or another, the first move of their life, right, is is not to cower in fear, but is to hold their hands open once again, look up to their sovereign God and say, God, you know all of this before I ever take a step. You're aware of it. You knew it all. And if you build your life on the sovereignty of God, who is over every circumstance and trial you'll ever go through, what happens is that when you navigate those trials, you're then so sure-footed because your identity is just like Christ's. See, Christ knew the trials that were coming before him. What happened when he was persecuted, when he was arrested and beaten and spit on and lied about? What happened to him? He, he withstood it. He didn't lash out. In fact, when one of his disciples lashed out with a sword, Peter, Jesus told him, stop, that's not the way we do this. And he went forward. And he continued to have this incredible faith that just trusted God and knew the plans that God had for his life and what he was to do. That's our savior, Jesus. He paved the way for faithful Christian living. Faithful follower of Christ in this room, in this day, Look to Jesus, not to Paul. Paul sets, the, Paul sets a great example, but he is pointing us to Jesus. When faithful Christian living causes persecution in your life, if your identity is not firmly rooted on the person of Jesus Christ, you will crumble and want to get more quiet and want to hide more. 
But one of the ways you know that you're living authentically for Christ is that when persecution comes, you feel your identity in Christ more than ever, building a strength in you that builds a confidence in you that says, I know the work that I've been giving by God is steadfast and secure, and I'm okay. The Lord has me. Anything I'm going through, that's exactly what Jesus did. You hear that, church? A fortitude to withstand persecution. I'm sharing this with you because I believe very firmly the days ahead are much more difficult for us as a church. The years ahead are much more difficult for us as a church. Jesus is a whole lot closer in this very moment to returning than at any given point in history. Whatever you believe about end times, he's more close today than he was yesterday because we're one day closer, okay? Persecution will come. We must be ready. And being ready does not mean building your muscles at the gym. Being ready means building your identity on Jesus Christ so that you have a fortitude to withstand whatever comes. Number five, Paul maintained a disciplined prayer life that bore tremendous fruit. Let me read that vision to you again from verses nine to 11. It's so beautiful here. The Lord says to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And then Paul stayed a year and six months, stayed 18 months, we need a disciplined prayer life. How, how did Paul get, do, do, you ever, do you ever do this? Look, if I, was, if I was Paul and I was getting visions, then sure I'd have that kind of faith, right? This is what I hear. If, if only God would give me a vision or, or say something with great clarity to me, then of course, I mean, then my prayer life, no, it goes the other way around. You want visions from the Lord? Build a disciplined prayer life. You wanna hear verbatim from the Lord what he's telling you? Build a disciplined, meaningful, word-saturated, hands-open-on-your-knees prayer life. You want to have a joy in your life that surpasses all circumstances? Build a meaningful prayer life. I've been reading William Wilberforce a lot recently. Wilberforce is the man who is primarily responsible for ending the slave trade in England many years ago. Amazing man of faith, but he, he compares and contrasts uh, cultural Christianity to authentic Christianity. And his great concern in his day, it's like he's writing of our day. It's amazing that they were doing the same thing back then. His great concern was that so many Christians called themselves Christians but had no prayer life. And he said, that's only cultural Christianity. That's Jesus by title, not Jesus by faith. Jesus by faith is there's this prayer that's coming out of you, not perfect. There will always be people that pray to a greater degree than you do, but you're growing and you're progressing in your prayer life. One of the, the things that has most deeply shaped my prayer life and continues to shape my prayer life is being around other people who are praying. That, that the thing that has most shaped my prayer life a man who I love dearly, Dr. Thrasher. My wife got to meet him a few months ago for the first time and got to honor him with the impact he had on my life. This man, I used to sign up for week-long classes. So, you know, you have to, you have to get off work for it. So you, you take a whole week and you just sit from eight to five with people in the classroom. I used to sign up for all the week-long classes with Dr. Thrasher I could just because I wanted, I wanted days with him at a time. I, I didn't just want him to teach what the lesson was. I wanted to get him off the lesson and just hear from the man. One of the great joys of seminary for me was sitting in those rooms with him. He couldn't pray without crying. Now, I'm not naturally a crier. I don't cry that many tears. However, I can tell you this. I want to be way more like that man. 
And, and what happened of being in that room with that man is that a little bit of him got imparted to me. I, I pray just a little bit more. I'm not him. He's, not, he's a different man. God has a different assignment for Dr. Thrasher. But, but a part of him kind of got in me. And sometimes I'm praying, and, and, and I'll be with a group praying, and I'll, I'll think, that's Dr. Thrasher coming out of me right now. If you want to change your life and you want to grow your prayer life, you got to pray with other people. And, and church, I, I know I'm on repeat here. We have so many opportunities for you to pray with people. It's crazy. And it's on you if you're not taking them up. We pray every single day at 12 o'clock over Zoom. And now, if that time doesn't work for you, we're opening a 6.30 a.m. daily prayer slot for you. Because many of you have to work and you can't get off at 12. You don't have to join every day. I know that might seem like a stretch for many of you. Commit to once or twice a week, 6.30 a.m. I'll be sending all the information out for you. We pray every Sunday morning, 8.15 to 8.45. How many folks were there this morning? Had to be 25. Josh, how many? 25 or so? That's a good crew. You want to learn how to pray? Come do it with other people. Maintain a disciplined prayer life. Number six, lastly. This is so beautiful. Paul had a vision to make disciples that made disciples. Okay, ready for this? You want to be an effective minister? Don't just make disciples. Make disciples that make disciples. Look what Paul does. So Paul invested in Priscilla and Aquila. That was in the top of this chapter, right in verses 1 through 3. Then we jump down to verses 24 to 28. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, arrived in Ephesus. I preached an entire sermon on these few verses last year. I'll send that out to you this week. He was an eloquent speaker, well-versed in this scripture. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and with great enthusiasm, he spoke and taught accurately the facts about Jesus, although he knew only the baptism of John. So here's Apollos preaching, but he doesn't really know everything. he's, He's like untrained a little bit, and so he only knows the baptism of John. He began to speak out fearlessly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Notice the beauty here. See the chains of discipleship. Paul discipled and mentored Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila then discipled and mentored Apollos. You know what the relationship of Apollos is to Paul? Spiritual grandchild. Do we have any grandparents in the room? You can be proud. You can raise your hand if you want. Maybe you want to hide it. Grandparents in the room? I know we got a few. I see three of you guys. Four of you. Five of you. Six of you. We got some grandparents in the room. Being a grandparent's pretty sweet, isn't it? Because the parents are doing all the work, <laughs> in a sense. No, that's not true. Grandparents are doing a lot of work. But the parents are doing the day-in, day-out work. But the grandparents get to come along and see the fruit of their work being born now in a generation removed. You see that? They're seeing all the things they invested in them. I think of my mom. My mom's in this room. All the ways she was strict with me watching movies growing up, and I thought she was crazy. I now am even more strict with my children. And so when my mom is at our house watching how I'm parenting my children, she's seeing the fruit of her work in my life now being mimicked in some way with the grandchildren. That means that the fruit of her life is not just in her own children, but is now generationally creating an entire another generation, and which will create another generation underneath her. That's physical grandparents. What about spiritual grandchildren? Every follower of Christ should be interested in making disciples. How do you make a disciple? To make a disciple is not just to teach someone the Bible. To make a disciple is to make a disciple maker. That's how you know you've made a disciple. 
When that person is then going out and making more disciples, they're sharing their faith with more people and there's more fruit coming out from their life, perhaps than coming out from your life, you've then made spiritual grandchildren. You see that? We talked about when I was in college, I had a man that mentored me named Brandon York. He's my spiritual father. And then, then there's me and then there's the folks that I've discipled under me and he used to talk about great-grandchildren. And how he, would, he was just a young guy. He said, I love looking at all my great-grandchildren out here in this room. And what do you mean? He just meant that he had been so intentional not just to make disciples, but to make disciple makers. Church, we got to learn how to do this. If you've never been equipped to make disciples who make disciples, you need to get trained in it. We need to talk about that in our small groups and foster the type of accountability that asks Is this true of me? Am I making disciple makers? Okay, six things we've talked about here. Six qualities. Let me wrap up by saying this. I've gone over six qualities of effective ministers of the gospel. You know what we're about as a church. We are doing everything we can to be a faithful church to the Lord Jesus Christ and to go out and have a faithful witness to a watching world. Why? Because there are many whom the Lord has stamped for faith out there that we've been called to have divine encounters with. And my question is, are you an effective witness for Christ? If I've gone through these six things and there's any area of these where you feel, I need sharpening, you know, that, that one, if, there's none, if you're sitting here right now saying none of them were for me, you didn't listen all that well because I got at least three of them on there that I need to sharpen up on. We all have things we need to sharpen up on. What are the ones that are for you? What I want to invite you to do is to share that with someone else from this church and to begin to have some accountability around this. If we're going to be effective and get after the work, we need to be intentional, just like Paul was. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this word today. Thank you for Acts chapter 18. Thank you for the the clear calling for your church to be witnesses to the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ in our life. God, I pray for effectiveness in ministry. I pray that we would be a church of a few hundred folks, Lord, who are all equipped to the great work you've called us to, who are fruitful in our lives, bringing about the gospel everywhere we go. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.